Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Tonight on The Readout. I would like to promise and pledge that I will totally accept the results of this great and historic presidential election if I win. Six years after those remarks, Republican candidates across the country are following Trump's lead threatening democracy by refusing to say whether they will accept election results that they don't like. Also tonight, what's next after a very bad week for Trump, with the special master telling his lawyers to put up or shut up, and New York's attorney general exposing years of alleged fraud. And as Kevin McCarthy makes his pitch for speaker, President Biden reminds Americans exactly what Republicans want to take from you if they win. Things like reproductive rights and Social Security. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jason Johnson and for Joy Reid. And we begin tonight with the cancer that continues to rot what's left of the desiccated corpse of the Republican Party. Moments from now, the former president will stand shoulder to shoulder with Ted Budd, North Carolina's Republican Senate nominee. Budd has refused to say whether he would accept this year's election results only if he loses. Budd voted against certifying the 2020 presidential election as a member of Congress just hours after the attack on the Capitol. And He's not the only one. From the Carolinas to California, from Cancun to Grant's tomb, election denialism has infected the Republican organization because they barely act like a party. According to the website 538, 60% of Americans will have an election denier on the ballot this fall. Out of the more than 500 Republicans running for office, nearly a quarter of them have fully rejected the legitimacy of the 2020 election. If you want a preview of just what life would look like with these kinds of folks in control, just take a look at Georgia, where election deniers are now using false claims to challenge the legitimacy of more than 60,000 voter registrations. And they just happen, I know this is shocking, to be voters that are in counties full of black and brown people. These challenges were brought about because Georgia's Secretary of State, the one who's pretending that he stood up for rights, refused to overturn the 2020 election for Trump. But state Republicans, afraid of making the MAGA king and all his other people look angry at them, decide to pledge their allegiance and change state election laws to fix problems that don't exist. Earlier today, the duly elected president of the United States, Joe Biden, just warned how dangerous this election denialism really is. It's become a litmus test in their party to pledge loyalty to Donald Trump by buying into the big lie. You can't let the integrity of our elections be undermined. Democracy can't survive. It cannot survive. Not a joke. Can't survive when one side believes there's only two outcomes to an election. Either they win or they were cheated. One of the most prominent election deniers he's referring to is currently running to control Arizona's elections. Mark Fincham is a Republican nominee for secretary of state. He's currently a state legislator and actually tried to decertify the Arizona election results back in 2020, but he failed. 
He's also a member of the Oath Keepers, that right-wing paramilitary group, and he attended the Capitol insurrection. According to Politico, a fellow Republican in the Arizona House was shocked at Fincham's success, given that, quote, Mark is known as the guy that's probably the dumbest, well, there's a long list, but one of the dumbest legislators in the House with friends like these. Look, last night, Fincham faced off with his Democratic opponent, Adrian Fontes, the former Maricopa County recorder who oversaw the 2020 election for really the entire country. It was a jarring side-by-side of two vastly different perspectives, one grounded in reality and the other grounded in the unhinged fever dreams of the big lie. Knowing what we know today, there are certain counties that should have been set aside as irredeemably compromised. Maricopa County was one of them. When we have conspiracy theories and lies like the ones Mr. Fincham has just shared, based in no real evidence, what we end up doing is eroding the faith that we have in each other as citizens. Later, Fincham pretty much made President Biden's point when he said that the reason we can trust results of his primary and not those of the 2020 election was because he won. Was the August midterm election fair? Were there any improprieties you saw? I have no idea. It is what it is. What changed? What changed? Yes. The candidates? While election day might be weeks away, you can already vote in North Carolina, Minnesota, South Carolina, I'm sorry, South Dakota, Virginia, and Wyoming. And joining me now to discuss all this is Adrian Fontes himself, the Democratic nominee for Arizona Secretary of State. Thank you so very much. Uh, I, I, I have to mention this, Adrian. I watched, I watched that debate and it reminded me of that old SNL sketch where the characters are like, how, how am I losing to this guy? Like, I, I just can't, I can't imagine what it was like being on stage with someone like that. I, I just want to start with this. You're running for Secretary of State. That is a, a incredibly important responsibility. What are the responsibilities of the Secretary of State in Arizona? Because it changes state by state. So what would you be responsible for in 2024? First, thanks for having me. The Secretary of State in Arizona is the chief election regulator, uh, chief election officer in Arizona. The 15 counties run the actual elections. The secretary really kind of herds all of those cats. Uh, We also have business services and public services inside of that office, near and dear to my heart are the archives and libraries. Uh, But we uh, really are sort of a ministerial office. The Secretary of State uh, does uh, critically certify the election results that come out of the canvases of each of Arizona's counties. Uh, And I think that's uh, the main point of discussion for today. And, And so the certification process, that would be you look at all the different counties, they give you their election results, and it's your job to evaluate if those are legitimate. It's your job to rubber stamp what they do. How does that certification process actually work? Well, it's not really a rubber stamp. Uh, a good secretary will work with the counties as they are building their canvases. will review them ahead of time before the counties actually uh, perform the canvas, do the vote that certifies, and then sends to the secretary's office. Good teams don't just rubber stamp. They make sure to work together along the way through the entire process so that it is smooth, so that we do have free and fair elections, so that we do have predictable government, uh, rational government, and not just weird chaos, which is what my opponent is presenting. And we just we just want things to work normally, right? And that's uh, really how the process is supposed to work. 
Exactly. Your job is to scrutinize what is delivered to you and then make sure it's fair for the entire country. And, and frankly, Arizona will be one of the states where the entire country's eyes are going to be on you. With that being in mind, I, I want to play you some sound here of your opponent. Um, the country was all focused on something that he was involved in last year. I want to get your thoughts about it on the other side. Do you think Arizona voters uh, want their chief elections officer um, at a riot at the U.S. Capitol to overturn an election? Is that what you think Arizona residents, citizens, voters want? The last time I checked, to be at a place when something's happening is not illegal. I'll be honest with you. Uh, if I was at something that turned into a riot, I would have left. I would have condemned it. If I'm at a party where there was like drinking going on, then I was in high school. I left. I was that kid. So I guess I have my, my standards are too high for someone running for office. But what are your thoughts about that? It's not only someone who's going to be responsible of holding a sacred oath of counting the ballot in the state of Arizona. What are your thoughts about running against someone who was basically a participant, bare minimum, I'm an observer in an attempted coup of the United States government? It was a crime scene, and he claims to have been a law enforcement officer, although the do not rehire from Kalamazoo Police Department speaks a little more to that. Um, it was a crime scene, and it wasn't just any old crime scene or any old riot. This was an attempted overthrow of the government of the United States of America, where they had a gallows set up to hang Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. This was an attempted coup. And for him to minimize it like that is not just callous, it's obscene as against the constitutional order of the greatest democracy this planet has ever seen. And folks like this are all over the country and they're dangerous in their delusion. And the delusion is that it wasn't that big of a deal and that this is just some kind of political gamesmanship. Their lack of capacity to understand the gravity of the moment and the destructive nature of their advocacy for this unpredictable chaos, that's that's bad. And it's really a negative reflection uh, on the rest of us that we haven't fought back with, back with a lot more vigor, uh, that we haven't held them to account uh, with a lot more disdain, uh, that we haven't moved more quickly to hold those who committed acts of violence that resulted in the deaths of law enforcement officers, by the way, right. uh, to hold them accountable. So shame on us for not going harder against these guys. Shame on us for not swinging back with the strength that they are coming at our democracy with. Shame on us for not standing up like so many other generations have uh, for our own voting rights and our own democracy. This is the kind of thing we want to hear from our elected officials. Thank you. Arizona Secretary of State Adrian Fontes, we will definitely try and have you back. Really appreciate it. Let's bring in Ense Ufat, CEO of the New Georgia Project and one of the most impressive voter organizers and activists that I have ever had the opportunity to interview. Uh, Ense, I, I'm going to ask this because we just talked to Adrian Fontes. He's running for Secretary of State in Georgia. Georgia still has a Secretary of State uh, whose claim to fame is that he did the minimum in 2020. He decided to not overturn an election. But there are still concerns about voter suppression uh, and, and questionable practices on the part of the Secretary of State's office in the state of Georgia right now. What is going on in Georgia with the electoral system and, and with certain voting places that's making it harder for people to go out and practice the franchise? 
the Georgia Republican Party, of which our Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is a member, has oh. taken a sledgehammer to our elections infrastructure, and they're doing everything that they can to cheat uh, in advance of the November 8th elections. We a, a lot has been written and said about Senate Bill 202, which was Georgia's own version of the anti-voting bill. I will remind your viewers that over 50 50 provisions in Georgia's laws were changed, including cr creating five new crimes for voting-related behavior, two of them, which are felonies, with carry with them penalties that are several years in prison and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. Just this Wednesday, Gwinnett County, the second largest county in Georgia, soon to be the largest county in Georgia, the most racially and ethnically diverse county in the southeastern United States, an individual random citizen uh, was able to try, was trying to challenge the voter status of 37,500 Gwinnett County voters. Again, the most ethnically and racially diverse county in the southeastern United States. Why that number matters so much in a state where there are 7 million voters? Because Georgia is America's newest battleground state. Georgia is America's newest swing state. The margin of victory for the president of the United States was just over 11,000 votes. That's 0. 0.00015 percentage points. And, the, and, and, and Republicans have allowed it that any individual can challenge an unlimited number of voters in any county in Georgia. That is deeply problematic. We don't have the resources. We are 46 days away from a historic election where there promises to be historic levels of participation. They are trying to break the machinery of Georgia's elections infrastructure because when everyone votes and every vote is counted, they will no longer be in power. It's obvious and it's disgusting. And Brad so, Raffensperger has endorsed it. He has endorsed it. He he is in lockstep with his party. He has not in any way come out against uh, these attacks on Georgia's elections as an individual citizen, as a patriot, nor as Georgia's chief elections officer. Well, look, we, we've all known that you can't really trust anything out of Raffensperger as a, a staff label and an organization. The Secretary of State's office is clearly compromised and has been uh, since before when, when you had Brian Kemp, who was in charge of these sorts of things and got to sort of administer uh, his, his own run for governor. My, my question, just very quickly, because a lot of people are concerned about this, when they hear this kind of news about Georgia, when they hear about these challenges, when they hear about the kinds of things Brian Kemp were doing, and they see the poll numbers, they're like, oh my gosh, is there any chance uh, that any of these candidates that care about democracy, like B. Wynn and, and Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock can win, what is something that people don't know about Georgia? Are there large numbers of people who haven't been counted in this polling yet? Are there places where registration has gone up that may counter some of this voter suppression? What's actually happening on the ground that may give people some hope about what the future might look like in that state in 46, minutes, uh, 46 days? What people need to know is that, one, the New Georgia Project alone has registered an additional 30,000 black people and young people this year since MLK Day of 2022, not to mention people who continue to move to the state, one. Number two, what people need to know is that almost seven out of 10 absentee ballots that have been requested up to this point have been requested by women. And we are absolutely in a post-Dobbs era. What people need to know is that there has been a 300% increase in black Georgians uh, 
requesting absentee ballots. And so there's polling, which takes a snapshot of what people think about in this moment. And then there's the data that's coming from the actual ballot that people are requesting that they are going to submit, right? I think what people need to know is that while there are challenges with the brand of the national political parties, that that's Stacey Abrams is not the DNC, right? And right. that they people know her, they know her work, they know her leadership, and they know what is at stake for Georgians in this moment. Um, gotcha. And that's what folks don't know and understand. Ense Ufat, we could talk throughout the entire show. Thank you so much for starting us off on The Readout today. Thank you. Up next on The Readout, are the walls closing in on Trump? Sure looks like it after a week of major legal setbacks. The Readout continues right after this break. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. It's been a very bad, no good, horrible week for a bunch of folks with the last name Trump. As legal challenges not only continue to mount with the addition of the civil lawsuit announced by the New York Attorney General, but because of the direction of the challenges are heading in, like in the case of Trump's gross mishandling of classified documents he took to his Florida golf resort. Beyond the fact that the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has sided with the DOJ in its effort to continue using those documents in their criminal investigation. Special master that Trump's legal team nominated and Trump is footing the bill for is quite literally telling Trump's legal team to put up or shut up in regards to some of Trump's most absurd defenses. Earlier this week, Special Master Judge Raymond Deary called out Trump's legal team to provide any evidence backing up Trump's repeated claims that he disclassified the documents. They declined. And just yesterday, Deary gave Trump's lawyers until next Friday to back up another of Trump's public claims that the FBI planted evidence. It's all playing out, as we learned this week, that Trump was warned by one of his former White House lawyers last year that this exact situation would happen if he did not return all the documents he took from the White House, particularly the classified material. Of course, it was a warning that Trump did not heed. 
Joining me now is Philip Rucker, deputy national editor for The Washington Post and an MSNBC political analyst, and Maya Wiley, president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on the Civil and Human Rights, who previously worked on the civil division of the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Thank you guys so much for joining me this evening. Phil, I'll start with you. I'm usually very hesitant to get into sort of the this is the worst week ever for Trump, um, but help put this in context for the audience. He had a special gamut. Hey, I'm going to get this special master, and that's going to allow me to delay things. But it seems like the special master hasn't really been on his side. Is that a, a huge blow? Was, that, was, was the special master Trump's Hail Mary? Uh, is that what they're sort of saying in Trump world right now? Or was this just another delaying tactic? Well, it wasn't exactly a Hail Mary, uh, but it was more than a delaying tactic. I think this was a strategy uh, by Trump and his legal team to uh, to, tr- to try to gain an advantage uh, in this investigation, frankly. They thought that they uh, could recommend as a special master someone uh, who would be more beholden to what Trump wants than what the law um, necessarily dictates. And, and what's happened uh, this week is we've seen the special master uh, exert some independent judgment and and kind of put Trump in a position that I don't think he anticipated uh, after getting the approval of the special master. So it's, you know, it's not quite a Hail Mary, but it's certainly uh, this is all a setback for Trump. And I think it comes at a time when he's facing these converging legal threats, including uh, most especially out of New York this week. Not a Hail Mary, maybe a half-court shot, maybe a 64-yard field goal. Yes, that's a Seahawks comment. Uh, (laughs) You know, Maya, I'll take this to you. Um, Here's what appears to be, according to New York Times, Trump's legal strategy. I want to see if if you think this makes any sense. So Trump's strategy over the declassification claims is he seems to be saying, during the hearing before Judge Deary, Mr. Trump's lawyers provided a glimpse of what the declassification gambit may actually be about. It appears to be a strategy that the former president's legal team is holding in reserve should he ultimately challenge the legality of the Mar-a-Lago search in a suspension motion or file court papers, known as a Rule 41 motion, to get some of the seized materials back from the Justice Department. Now, my understanding of this, with only a couple of years of law and order under my belt, is that his hope is to say the entire search was somehow illegal And consequently, not only is this investigation have to come to a grinding halt, but somehow he can get back some of the papers that shouldn't have been his to begin with. Maya, does any of that have any legal chance one way or another, or did he get this from the Alex Jones School of Legal Theories? Well, uh, I'm going to have to go with um, choice B, because (laughs) it was very, very hard to actually even re-judge Cannon's decision, the underlying decision that the 11th Circuit quickly threw out, where Donald Trump said, you know, hey, the Department of Justice shouldn't even be able to look at the classified documents, which are owned by the federal government, by the way, uh, in an ongoing criminal investigation about whether any crimes were committed with those documents. Uh, The whole thing, the whole process seemed to me to be grasping at straws and using anything they could find to try to not only mount some semblance of a defense, but also, frankly, to try this case to some degree in the court of public opinion to do what Trump does um, uh, quite frequently, which is just make stuff up in order to make it look like he's not doing as much wrong that he's actually doing wrong and convinces base. Because the truth is, it's why the 11th Circuit moved very quickly 
why the Department of Justice rightly moved very quickly. Um, and in terms of whether or not he's got some ability to throw these documents out, if in fact there is an indictment, but let alone get them back when they're not his documents, is very hard to imagine. Right, right. Yes, it's very difficult to say, I want those library books back that are actually in the ownership of the library. Uh, Philip, I, I want to play you some sound from a Trump interview earlier this week, where he also sort of lays out, as Maya sort of suggests, his, his public gambit, his let me try to make this a, a, a public spectacle and, and have the court of public opinion handle this because I'm not winning the actual courts and get your thoughts on the other side. This is him talking about the unwritten rule that was violated by Tish James earlier this week. And there's a rule that's an unwritten law. You never do this politically. They won't, you won't see Hunter Biden attacked during this period. 60 to 90 days out before an election, nobody gets attacked. They attacked me. So, Phil, I'll start with you. Just from the pure politics standpoint, how does that play, right? I mean, if you're part of Trump's base, you already think that everything is, is, is against him. And if you're sort of a, a moderate American who actually functionally cares about democracy, the vast majority of polling has shown people say, hey, I don't think he should have this. How does that kind of interview play with the audience and, and the public as a whole? Well, it just plays right in uh, to, to Trump's effort to politicize all of this and, and plays into uh, what his base wants to hear, which is not that these are uh, sort of legitimate legal and criminal investigations and charges that are brought, but rather, in Trump's mind, uh, they're political attacks brought by his enemies with a campaign purpose in mind. Uh, that's not what this is. This is the, uh, the state prosecutor leveling pretty serious charges. Uh, against Trump and, and his company. And what you have at the Justice Department, of course, is a is a federal law enforcement investigation uh, into his handling of classified documents. Also, just so your viewers understand, that rule that he's talking about, that 60-day rule, it, it, it is an unwritten rule at the Justice Department. It's not a law, uh, but it is a rule, a norm that the Justice Department has followed. But the action by Tish James in New York is separate from the Justice Department. That's not a federal action. That's a state action. And, you know, they don't, Tish James's office does not uh, adhere to federal Justice Department rules. Maya, very quickly, we have dual investigations, one from the DOJ, uh, uh, one from the, the state of New York. Which one do you think gets a conviction faster? Do you think that, that the process that Tish James laid out this week, will we see somebody in an orange jumpsuit from Trump's inner circle from her or from the DOJ faster? Well, let's remember that Tish James' suit is civil, not criminal, number one, and it's probably going to be a lengthy process. It usually is. I have to say Department of Justice on these documents. Um, it is a very clear uh, that they have recovered documents from Donald Trump's residence he did not own, should not have possessed, should not have kept. His own attorneys told him so. And, is, uh, and so that's where we are. Philip Rucker and Maya Wiley, thank you so much, Maya. I think I hear a cat meowing in the background on set there. So Every, added some, added some real passion. <laughs> um, thank you guys so much for joining this evening. Up next, a series of scandals and controversies shaking up the world of professional sports with Brett Favre's alleged involvement in a sordid fraud scandal topping the list. We'll be right back after this break. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre is known for many things, leading the Green Bay Packers to victory, showing up in There's Something About Mary, ridiculous career stats, sexual harassment, possible painkiller addiction, and also the $140 million he earned during his two-decade career. Alas, the mighty, the praised, have finally fallen. These days, Favre is embroiled in a scandal in Mississippi, where millions of dollars in federal welfare money went to projects that benefited the not-so-needy, including a new volleyball facility at Favre's alma mater, where just so happens his daughter attended and played the sport. The scandal in the nation's poorest state is heating up. On Thursday, John Davis, a key figure in the welfare spending scandal, pleaded guilty to federal fraud charges. Elsewhere in the world of sports, the Boston Celtics shared more on its suspension of coach Ime Udoka saying the penalty came after a months-long investigation that found multiple violations of team policies. The team's interim coach is now assistant Joe Mazzula, who comes with some legal issues of his own. He was arrested on suspicion of domestic battery in 2009, which was later settled out of court. Joining me now is Terrence Moore, sports journalist and columnist at Forbes, to discuss all these things. Terrence, goodness gracious, when they say that sports are soap operas, this is, this is the week. Uh, I, I want to I start with Brett Favre. Um, one of the things that strikes me about this case is not just the corruption, but the introspection that it has caused in some of the sports media. Many people, there have been tweets and commentary about the fact that, you know, Brett Favre should be uh, being covered with the same relentlessness uh, that was uh, that Jameis Winston got when he stole $32 worth of crab legs, that Brett Favre should be treated uh, with much more hostility uh, than, than, than Michael Vick uh, or Colin Kaepernick were. How do you think the sports media has handled covering this Brett Favre story, given the depth and breadth of the crime that he is allegedly involved in? Well, Jason, I'm going to start with this. Depending on how all this turns out, it's going to make me decide whether or not I'm going to burn my Brett Favre T-shirt here. <laughs> I'm leaning toward doing it. And, and I bring that up because being a member of the media, I can speak for all of us, Brett Favre was a delight to talk to. He really was. And, and, mm. and that's part of the problem here. He was such a likable person. Yeah, not so much on the field when he was throwing the interceptions and the other things, but for 20 years, I mean, he was a, a great player. And he was to say, that should have nothing to do with this. And, and it should have nothing to do with the fact that he was a very cooperative player with us. So, yes, there is a double standard here. There's no question about it. There is no way in the world when Brett Favre says he knew nothing about this, when you're getting a million dollars to speak and you don't speak, 
Okay, when, when your your alma mater is getting five million dollars for a volleyball facility, and by the way, Jason, that must be one heck of a volleyball facility. Nothing right. against volleyball, but five million dollars, and then when your daughter plays a part of that there, and you talk about the poorest state in the country, this is not a good look to say the least. Yeah, you know, I, I was struck by that because again. Being likable is something that can change how a lot of the press covers you, but it doesn't necessarily change the crimes or the seriousness of, of the things that you committed. With that in mind, I, I want to turn to Ima Udoka now. Now, look, there's all sorts of memes. There's all sorts of commentary. There's strange tweets going out about his personal life. But I'm struck by two things about this story, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. First, you, you have it first leaked by the Celtics organization that they're going to suspend him for a year. Then there's a press conference where they say, look, he violated lots of team policies. He gets a one-year suspension. Terrence, what confuses me about this is we still don't know the specifics of what he supposedly did. But more importantly, there's not been a peep out of the NBA coaches uh, coaches union. And usually the union steps in at this point and says, hey, we're going to investigate this or we're going to appeal the one-year suspension. Why do you think there has been no word from the NBA coaches union about a one-year suspension of a coach who, in his rookie season, took a team to the NBA finals? Well, in the words of my late grandmother, this is a hot mess, okay? (laughs) No one has ever seen anything like this in the history of the NBA uh, uh, coach being in this, this situation. So a lot of this, Jason, is that, that this is just a, a totally unprecedented situation. And and let's face it, the, the person to blame the most is Aduka. Uh, he's the one that got himself in this situation. Let's deal with what we know. We, we know that the Boston Celtics have some rule out there. You cannot be involved in any kind of affairs with somebody who is part of the, the organization. He violated that rule. Now, what went on beyond that, who knows? But it's obvious from what you just said right there, this is pretty bad. I mean, when you've got not only his peers not defending him, not saying a word about it, there's something else that's more that's involved here. And what's so sad about this, just from a basketball standpoint, human standpoint, is discussing if he did what he's alleged to do. But from a basketball standpoint, here's this guy, first year as a head coach, did a splendid job. I mean, they were under 500 in January and streaked all the way to the, to the NBA Finals. But all that just gets washed away because there's this more serious matter. What did he do here? We don't we don't know, but it does not look good, whatever it is. And, and the other thing is, I, I think the way in some ways that the Celtics handled this led to a lot of unfair and sexist and problematic speculation about other people oh, on no, staff no. because they failed to be clear about what happened. Uh, Terrence Moore, yeah. thank you so much for joining us this evening. We're going to go to who won the week ahead. But first... We only have 46 days until the midterm elections, and the political jabs are flying fast and furious. That and more next on The Readout. With the midterms now just 46 days away, we actually have some breaking news. Uh, Just released now, an Arizona judge has just ruled that the state can enforce a near total ban on abortion. A near total ban on abortion. This just coming from a judge in the state of Arizona, uh, right in time for leaders of both political parties to be sharpening their messages to voters. Look, this is a serious, serious issue and something that's going to be of concern to many voters throughout the country. So while Kevin McCarthy is trying to make his pitch for Speaker of the House and introducing the Republican committee, Republican commitment to America and his agenda in Pennsylvania, he's also got to deal with the fact that you've got more and more Republicans and more Democrats and more Americans who are concerned about their future. But 
He figures he can cover all that with the predictable MAGA Republican buzzwords. On our very first bill, we're going to repeal 87,000 IRS agents. We can build an education system that has a parent's bill of rights. We should ensure women only compete in women's sports. Yeah, in case you missed it, yes, that was none other than Marjorie Taylor Greene seated directly, seated directly behind McCarthy. A short time later in Washington, President Biden rebuked McCarthy's plan as goals with little or no details and laid out for voters a clear contrast between the parties running for office this fall. In 46 days, America's going to choose. If Republicans win control of the Congress, abortion will be banned. But if you give me two more Democratic senators in the United States Senate, I promise you, I promise you, we're going to codify Roe. America's going to face a choice. If Republicans control the Congress, Social Security will be on the chopping block. But if you support the Democrats, I promise you this, Social Security will be protected, period. Joining me now is Mara Gay, MSNBC political analyst and member of the New York Times editorial board, and Victor Shi, strategy, strategy director for Voters of Tomorrow, co-host of the iGen Politics podcast and a 2020 Biden delegate. Thank you all so much for joining me this evening. I'm going to start with this. Uh, just your reactions to this new ruling from an Arizona judge uh, allowing a near total ban on abortion in the state of Arizona. I'll start with you, uh, Mara. What do you think this does for voters in the state of Arizona right now? If they were having any questions about whether they want to participate, what do you think this is going to do? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm thinking about women, pregnant people, uh, in the state of Arizona right now, just the heartbreak I know as a woman that comes uh, when you know that your government does not protect you and in fact is seeking to control uh, the decisions that should be made between you and your health care provider. These are life and death decisions. So unfortunately, we're going to see more tragic stories, I fear, coming out of yet another state as women's rights are being stri- uh, stripped away. I think the political impact is pretty clear. Um, If you look at what the movement that really started in Kansas um, at the ballots this year, uh, it's clear that American voters, not just Democrats and not just women, are uh, they see what's happening and they see that uh, not only are women's rights under assault, but really basic fundamental American freedoms that we have come to enjoy in this country, though imperfectly, are at risk, no matter who you are, um, because of the move to uh, really start controlling Americans' lives. And I think that Americans don't like it. And I think that's why the Republicans aren't talking about it, because they know these are unpopular with voters who are not in their deepest red base. And they're hoping that American voters forget come November that uh, they are the ones that are uh, taking our rights away. Victor, you know, with your work and your organization, you're dealing with new voters, the youngest voters, first-time voters. When legislation like, it was actually not legislation, when rulings like this come down, how does it hit sort of first-time voters? Is this the kind of thing, you know, after they deal with the shock, after they deal with the offense, the fear, the, the heartbreak, as Mara was just talking about, Does it tend to mobilize them or does it frustrate them that the system seems to continue to ignore what their needs and desires are as American citizens? 
So I think it's that frustration and anger that is really turning out young voters come this November election. This is why young voters are so mobilized and so engaged in this election. In the past, we've seen the young voter uh, turnout really tick up. But I think in this election, you're going to see that really change because Republicans are clearly coming after our lives. Dobbs, that decision overturning uh, Roe versus Wade and uh, access and limiting the uh, ability for young people to access abortion and women to access abortion. That was a key decision because that's the first time that people in my generation saw a right literally get overturned by the Supreme Court. And then you have states across the country like Arizona today that are seeking to impose an, a ban on abortion. This is something that young people know all too well, especially young girls who are who might be seeking abortions. They cannot access safe and legal abortions. And that is what's riling up a lot of people in my generation, we feel the anger, we feel the frustration. And I think you're going to really see that turnout come November. And I'd also like to point out one thing, which is that this is going to happen if Republicans win in 2022. And you just have to listen to someone like Senator Lindsey Graham. It's not just in the states. The federal government wants to do this. So Senator Lindsey Graham comes out and says he wants to impose a nationwide ban on abortion, I think voters really have to pay attention to that. And I think that young voters, especially this time around, aren't oblivious. We understand what's going on, and I think we're going to act on it. Mara, I want to play you some sound from uh, President Joe Biden talking about abortion and how it in particular affects women voters in these midterms. Justice Alito said that women can decide the outcome of this election. Well, he ain't seen nothing yet. I don't believe the MAGA Republicans have a clue about the power of American women. Mar, the data is there that there has been a huge uptick in voter registration, first-time voters amongst women, especially women under the age of 30. The question is, we've seen in many times in the past that while there may be an uptick in women voting, they don't necessarily vote for candidates who are always about protecting abortion rights. There are large numbers of white American women voters who vote for Republicans who want to restrict their rights, but at the same time want to vote to protect those rights. How do you think these new numbers that we're seeing now, how do you think they play out? Is, is Joe Biden right? Is this, are, are the power of women voters, is that going to protect abortion rights this fall? Or do we just not know until election day because we don't know how the women are going to vote? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, I don't think um, any of us can take anything in our democracy for granted right now. So uh, the elections in November will be won, uh, not just at the ballot box, but by get out the vote efforts and organizing across the country. But I, I also think, you know, generally for Democrats, new voters and more voters is a good thing. So, um, you know, broadly speaking, it is the case that the more people who vote nationally, traditionally Democrats tend to do better. And so that's a good sign for the Democrats. I think the other uh, factor here is that people who are newly motivated in this environment to vote um, may very well be coming out in support of abortion rights, because let's just remember that the most hardcore Republicans are likely to vote in primaries which they've already done. They've already gotten their Supreme Court picks, so they may not be quite as motivated. We really don't know. Again, nothing can be taken for granted. I think the big question for Democrats as well is not only what happens in Congress, but can they motivate Democratic voters who are exhausted to show up in their state elections and really understand the importance of what happens in state 
houses across the country because they're the legislators. Looks like Mara is freezing up a bit. Well, look, Mara and Victor are sticking around to help us kick off the weekend with a round of Who Won the Week? So that's next after this break. Stay right here. We made it to the end of the week, which means it's time to play Who Won the Week? Back with me are Mara Gay and Victor C. Victor C., Mara, start with you real quick. Who won the week? Yeah, my person of the week is uh, Bexar County Sheriff Javier Salazar, who has opened a criminal investigation into the flying of the migrants from uh, San Antonio uh, to Martha's Vineyard. And thank you to the sheriff for reminding us that there are consequences for hateful political conduct. Yes, police doing a good job. Victor, real quick, who won the week? In the same vein as justice and accountability, I'm going to choose New York Attorney General Letitia James. She is um, just amazing. And she showed us that the rule of law matters, equal justice under the law. And I hope that this is just one out of many of the hopefully acts of accountability and justice that will be facing the former guy uh, in the next weeks or months to come. These are both great winners, but I am saying the winner of the week is the Writers Guild of America West, which has announced their new board of directors. Look, we talk about Amazon, we talk about Starbucks, but there are unions for the men and women who bring us the TV shows every day that we watch, from our housewives to what we watch on HBO and everything else like that. They have a brand new board that will be fighting for the rights of men and women to get paid for the content that they create that we consume every day. So thank you for the new board, WGA West. Thank you, Mara Gay and Victor Shee for joining us tonight. And that's tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.